I've written off the winter. Um, I'm expecting to lose money all the way through till probably next March, and um, and that's 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 really going to be that's really what we've got to expect on our plates. And, and it's a it's a balance because we have to keep you know look after our staff and make sure they're okay, and uh, at the same time make sure that we're we're financially strong enough to take advantage of of things the other side. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. The sharp rises of COVID cases in the UK forced the hand of the government into a second lockdown. It comes at a time that Melbourne has begun opening up its restaurants and society. Just a few months ago, the UK and Victoria recorded similar daily numbers, but they've both gone in different paths. What impact is it having on the UK's restaurant sector? Mitch Tonks is one of the world's most influential seafood chefs and owner of the Seahorse Restaurant and Rockfish Restaurants. Mitch, how are you going? Hey, really nice to talk to you, Huck. We're okay. We're doing okay. What's the landscape like there at the moment being sent into a second lockdown? How, how, how are you feeling? Well, it feels very different from the first lockdown. I mean, the first lockdown was in the summer here and uh, there was a lot of people still moving around. We had really good weather and, of course, every single thing was shut. And now what we've got is schools open, universities open, um, some like takeaway going on somewhere. So it doesn't really feel like the first lockdown. And uh, and actually the second one, I think most people are finding pretty miserable. What sort of impact is this having, do you think, on the on the restaurant sector? You have multiple restaurants, but um, how, is, how is, what's the sense in the hospitality yeah. sector at the moment? I think it's carnage all over, and I think uh, like like anything, there are there are sort of you know some people are faring better than others, but I think in general, um, you know, the first lockdown was like nothing we've ever seen before, and nobody, no entrepreneur or restaurateur has ever had to deal with a business challenge which was zero income. Uh, we've had pretty good support from the government in uh, in a lot of ways. You know, we have a scheme over here where the government are paying eighty percent of people's wages. Um, and businesses have to top up if they want to give if they want to give people more. Um, there is um, landlords in some in some areas have been appalling and some areas have been working with business. Uh, there's been some pretty good funding um, sort of options from uh, banks as well. But the problem is all that stuff's got to be paid back at some point. So we're in for a we're in for a, a long haul. But I think that, you know, from our perspective, our restaurants are all on the coast and uh, we had an amazing summer because nobody could go away. Nobody could fly. Um, everybody came to the coast, uh, everybody in the southwest had an absolute bumper two to three months, like the best year we've ever had, and uh, which is which was really odd. Well, everybody else in, in cities were, were just struggling and struggling and struggling. And, uh, and now we're going into the winter uh, here, which was always my fear. I, I, I thought we would go into the winter without a summer behind us, which would have been pretty catastrophic, but we've had a good trading period. And now we're into the winter and it's deathly. I mean, there really is. Uh, I mean, obviously all restaurants are closed. Um, but we we two takeaways we open and we keep our retail fish market open, but even that's proving to be a real challenge. You are heading into winter and the the cases have been rising. What's 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 your feeling at the moment? With you know the numbers are staggering compared to what we've experienced in Australia. Um, how, how are you feeling about the pandemic and and what's what's ahead? I think we're all. I think everyone's really uh, really worried. I mean, the winter time is where we traditionally in England we see people with you know colds and flu that's just that's just what happens at this time of year and it spreads as everyone goes back inside but i think i think now there's a vaccine on the horizon there's a you know a people are a little more buoyant about what things will be next year but i think generally everybody in the industry and certainly in in the kind of holiday regions where we are 
I've written off the winter. Um, I'm expecting to lose money all the way through till probably next March. And, um, and that's, that's, that's really going to be, that's really what we've got to expect on our plates. And, and it's a, it's a balance because we have to keep, you know, look after our staff and make sure they're okay. And uh, at the same time, make sure that we're, we're financially strong enough to take advantage of, of things the other side, which, uh, which we will be. What sort of position are you in at the moment? You're, you're just sort of talking about March, which is still a long way away in regards to the viability of the restaurants. I mean, you can have as deep pockets as you want, but the reality of restaurants is really slim margins. What's, what's, what's the landscape looking like for realistically for restaurants? I think it's, I think it's pretty grim. I mean, if, if we talk about ourselves, we'll, you know, we'll get through and um, we'll, we'll, we'll trade again. And I, I'm not, I'm not particularly worried about whether we'll exist or not. You know, our restaurants will, will continue and get through, but I worry about the, I worry about the sort of changing landscape of the industry. I mean, we are, uh, we are an, an amazing industry and the restaurant industry in the UK is just full of some incredible entrepreneurs and people that you know have built bars and restaurants out of almost nothing and I guess what we're going to do is go through this kind of churn and those people will and we'll all reinvent ourselves and do things again I mean some of the stuff that's come out of this has been phenomenal so you know some restaurants started doing home delivery you know here's a box of food from the restaurant and you know I've had a, a few sent to me from restaurant mates to uh give them feedback and uh, and we've bought a couple but I tell you what some of the stuff that you can buy and eat at home is just truly and utterly fantastic so um you know mates of mine that run Hawksmoor uh, Will Beckett he's our chairman they they launched Hawksmoor at home so you can curate a wonderful evening and some cocktails at your house and their sales are off the off the scale with it so 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 I think restaurateurs in their natural entrepreneurial state will reinvent themselves and uh, and get through so uh, but there will be some loss, I think. Pubs are going to suffer here more than anything. Um, I think pubs are, you know, everyone seems to have it in, the government seems to have it in for pubs, in that, you know, that's where it's spread and, you know, the curbing the sale of alcohol and all those kind of things. So I do feel for pub groups incredibly so, and, and indeed my local. You know, it's part of our community here, having a pub. You've been a very influential restaurateur and chef for a long time in the UK. Why, why seafood? Your focus is very much on seafood. What drew you to that? Well, I grew up in a little place called Western Superware, which is on the north coast um, in Somerset, on, so on the, on the, in the southwest peninsula. And as a kid, you know, I mean, we were just sort of left to run and go and do our own things. You know, we used to play on the beach, and I guess the, the beach became my playground. And uh, I used to fish a lot, water ski, wakeboard. And uh, and there was just a, a kind of real love. I used to go out, you know, on fishing boats, catching conger eels and all that kind of stuff. And, and then I used to spend a lot of time in the kitchen with my grandmother, who was just the most fabulous cook. And, you know, I, I'd be sent down to fishmongers with her to go and pick up crabs and brown shrimps and all sorts of things. And I I'd just sit there preparing them with her. You know, it was just it was just it was just normal. You know, she wasn't the most amazing cook in the world. But I, I guess in those days people did cook. So it's kind of what I remember. And then I had a bit of a wandering career. Uh, getting into building and all sorts of things and um, at sort of 27 decided I wanted to open my own fish shop because I was just uh, you know I'd, I'd realized that I was so enthusiastic about seafood and nobody was selling it in the UK and that's when it started um, and then I you know had fish left over in the evenings and I used to think why can't I just open a little restaurant upstairs and and and, and cook it and it was quite interesting because you know at that at that time um, you know this is back in 98 most of the kind of fish restaurants in the UK were very classically run by very classically trained chefs, lots of cream involved uh, with all the cooking. And I was kind of 
watching what you guys were were doing over there and you know seeing the kind of asian influence of things and also you know re- reading cookbooks and things and old jane grigson books and that they were just grilling fish they were doing things incredibly simply and so that's what i started doing and that's where i really discovered you know wow i, I love this and i also love this this wonderful nakedness about great seafood and since then i've I've just traveled the world eating and cooking seafood, really, which has been wonderful. Well, it's one of the hardest things to do. And like simplicity in food is one of the most beautiful, but it is actually hard to get right. But where it really works is seafood. You're surrounded by water and it's such a small island there. You know, in Australia, we've got amazing seafood, but Perth is five hours flight from Sydney away. It's a huge country. And um, But what's it like getting access to seafood in the UK? Uh, I mean, I mean, it's brilliant, and I, I I harp on that we've got some of the best seafood in the world here. And I live in a small fishing town called Brixham, um, which is on the south coast. And I look out my 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 office window, and I look straight at the fishing fleet. And we, it's the biggest port in in England. Uh, we land uh, forty million pounds worth of fish here, but it's all stuff like turbot, Dover sole, cuttlefish. Uh, most of it, you know, ninety five percent of it, all going abroad. And interestingly, I had um, I got sus over here. Um, some years ago and he bought pugs and a few of the kind of uh, fishermen from from Australia and uh, we had a little fishing competition and uh, we we had a, it was great we had a whole load of fish sent over from Australia King George Whiting and all sorts of wonderful things and we did a little cook-off in my kitchen uh, of Aussie fish and um, UK fish and it was fascinating it was really great it was really great and uh, you can imagine the competitiveness going on between uh, between which one tasted better, but uh, you know, but you guys have got the, those lovely big bluefish and uh, you know those kind of lovely big snappers and, uh, and all that kind of stuff, which I think is unique too. Well, that's an amazing room to be in with uh, Andrew Puglisi from um, Kinkawuka Mussels and John Sussman, the the fish fiend of Australia. What what, what fish won out that day? Oh man, they they were uh, <coughs> raving about Dover Soul, and uh, my pal Matt, who uh, founded a seahorse with me. Um, he's a classically trained chef and he cooks the best Dover Sauvignon on the planet. And, uh, and the boys were just absolutely raving about it. But it was really great because there was, I can't remember everyone's names now, uh, Ferguson from Kangaroo Island, um, Steve Moriarty, the tuna fisherman. I mean, there were a whole sort of 15 of the guys. And we just, we just had this amazing, uh, amazing time. It was really awesome. What's it been like having that career change, you know, being 27 and moving into that sort of food area? Has, has it been a challenge being a, a fishmonger and then restaurateur? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a constant learning curve. You're always on the balls of your feet trying to work stuff out. Um, you know, and, and over the years, I've got a whole load of stuff wrong. Um, but I managed to kind of grow that um, first restaurant group into 13. We had 10 in London. and We floated on the stock market back in 2005. And uh, so it was a big old, uh, a big old journey. And um, it, it, it was wonderful. Um, made a lot of mistakes on the way. But it was just pure enthusiasm for wanting to share a love of seafood with people and and cooking that sort of made it work. And, I, you know, I did a lot of TV and stuff during the period. And I always had this, I guess, this imposter syndrome, you know, of like not really being a trained chef, but kind of being out there and uh, and doing it. And uh, and in the end, I think I think once you find what it is you love doing in life, it just becomes, I don't know, work. I don't, I don't know when I work and when I rest. It, it all feels... Like it's just one life, really, which is uh, which is really wonderful. That simplicity that just stars when you use seafood. How do, how do you do that? How do you approach cooking seafood? Is there a fish that you 
just love to cook and you can can you take us through the best way you would cook it so i think the interesting thing about the experience that you have you get over the years of working with seafood there's not many fish that i haven't prepared eaten or cooked and each one of them has individual qualities that ha- just need different treatment so for example squid just cooking squid over an open fire can be truly wonderful but when the squid gets slightly larger and you know you you can't really you end up toasting the outside and the inside doesn't really get that properly um, lovely grilled texture so you, you kind of need small squid to do that and then the larger squid are very good for braising and then you take fish like red mullet which you know uh, when they get big i think they need to be filleted uh, because you get a really you get a wonderful different texture of the flake but when they're small um, they're great for just shallow frying and i would say probably a, a red mullet uh, four to six ounce in size is probably my favorite fish to eat in the world and and the reason being is that they just have this incredible saffron taste that you get from the from the, the, the skin and they need to be treated really delicately so it's it's the only fish really that i i, had, I put flour on and uh, and i just literally dust it in light, in, in light flour a little, a little olive oil a little rosemary tucked into the uh, into the belly and um and then just gently fry it in olive oil to get this wonderful sort of golden caramelization uh, on the outside keeping the skin intact and then just serve that with some sea salt and some lemon and and i think it's one of the most delightful um pieces of fish in the world the, the same as turbot you know so turbot a small one kilo turbot cooked over a fire uh, in a cage that's maybe 500 mil above the flames basting it with a mixture of sort of olive oil and vinegar um, you do get a wonderful experience as the fish poaches almost in, in inside its inside its skin and and the white skin uh, really does become something magnificent but then you take a chunk of you know a four to five kilo fish and you roast it in a conventional oven and what you get is the kind of membranes between the flakes just melting and you get this wonderful gorgeous stickiness that you don't get on small fish so i think it's a kind of you know that education in seafoods uh has been a, a joy for me and i think that that's what the great fish cooks of the world if you you know every time i've met you know sat down and uh had coffee with tetsuya when i was in sydney you know he just lives and breathes seafood and talks about it in such an intelligent way that this is no wonder that when you eat the food that he prepares it's so it's so delicious and uh, and likewise i've been to some pretty big name chef restaurants and had fish dishes and think you haven't got a clue what you've got your hands on you know you, you've cooked it and you've prepared it it looks amazing on the plate but it's not you, you haven't bought out the best in this piece of fish so i think that's uh that just comes from working with one thing i think at the top of the show you talked about how amazing the british uh, culinary scene is and um can you take us through you know what what did what british cuisine is you know there's but in the in the day there was a bit of ridicule about whether the british could cook but the food scene there is actually incredibly extraordinary and one of the leaders in the world can you tell us a bit about how you see the british um hospitality landscape well i think i, I think we're we're we are definitely a nation of, I mean, I didn't realize until the pandemic just how many people were employed in hospitality, but we're a hugely social nation. And I think, you know, if you if you if you think about British food per se, um, you know, it's grey food. It's we we you know, fifty years ago, sixty years ago, we were we were eating, you know, pies and mints and you know all those kind of things, which are equally delicious. And there are some chefs that have carried on interpreting that. But the landscape is just diverse. I mean, I, I think, you know, London certainly is one of the best, most exciting places to eat on the on the planet. Uh, you know, you can walk around Chinatown and find any 
number of dumping places, dim sum places, things that have kind of all sprung up. And usually it starts with, um, I mean, there's an Indian restaurant called Cricket. And I, I don't know the people that run it at all. I just know it's two lads read their story that travelled India, loved it and came back and, and, and opened this restaurant with their own. I don't think either of them were chefs either. They just came back and did their own kind of take on Indian food. And I remember sitting in there just eating it and everything was just so incredibly sort of sweet, hot, fragrant, you know, that kind of wonderful flavour explosion in the mouth. And um, and it was really wonderful. And, and there are any number of restaurants like that. And, you know, you've got big steak restaurants like Hawksmoor um, who really sort of, I don't know, created that like walking into one of their restaurants it feels like it's been there forever and you feel like you're walking into some part of London's history and then you sit down and drink great cocktails and it's bars underground um and and also I think that what we've got is we're a very ambitious nation so you get you get young chefs just go out and do stuff you know they'll do you know you find people doing like pop-ups and then going off into you know their own kind of permanent restaurants and we've just got some amazing talent here. I mean, we really have. It's phenomenal. You've got a lot of venues and it's quite a, quite a big company that you have in the, and you're very influential in the hospitality sector. What's it been like as a business owner during this period with all sorts of political turmoil in regards to Brexit and then the pandemic? Has it had an impact on, on what you do? I mean, it most certainly has, but I, in, in my case, I think it's been a we've had a, it's been a positive imp- impact on the way we thought about about our business. I think the one thing that's been really amazing through all of this is the camaraderie in our industry is phenomenal. You know, the amount of contact I had during the first lockdown from fellow restaurateurs was actually quite moving, and uh, conversations that we had, information we shared, um, all in all in the sort of name of, of of let's work together and get through this. But we had a, um, I've got this really great restaurant director, a guy called Dave Strauss, who used to run uh, a couple of restaurants over here, Burger and Lobster and Goodman Seafood. He's been with us a couple of years. And Dave's always been kind of like prodding me about everything that's wrong with restaurants, you know, to the point that I, I think, oh, Dave, why are you in restaurants? Because all you do is keep telling me what's wrong with them. And uh, and he, he had an incredible foresight um, in, a, in a sense of, look, you know, we have all these people on the floor. We work them to death in the summer. You know, we... You know, basically all the stuff that we know about working in a restaurant is tough for people as to why people don't continue in the industry. And during the first lockdown and, and leading up to it, I really kind of took Dave's advice and lead. And we reviewed every single part of our business. You know, what, why do we have to have 28 wines? Why have we got 14 beers? Why have we got why have we got all these things? They take time to stack. They take time to carry upstairs. Customers really don't need all that choice. And why are we open so many hours in the winter? Why don't we open less? And why don't we put less people on the floor and take some tables out so the kitchen's just not bashed, you know, to death or the whole time, you know, we're just trying to cram covers in. Anyway, and, and why is the menu so big? Why can't the menu be smaller? Why can't we, you know, we've done some things like printing it on tablecloths, you know, on paper tablecloths, which we did, which we always did at Rockfish anyway. We, 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 you, when you go to a Rockfish restaurant, we have all the local fish. Uh, on the paper tablecloth and the way to circles what we have today and then of course we have the menu so we shorten the menu and put it onto the um, onto the tablecloth and uh, the result has been less staff happier staff less customers more average spend and more profit and it it's kind of it's kind of like all of the things that we were doing would would be things that if you'd have tried to do them pre-pandemic it would have been like trying to stop a moving train. You had never been able to change the things that we did. 
and 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 so those changes have been really positive and, and really our restaurant models have been bust for a long time we're so keen to well that's why we're in it we, we just love looking after people like to the nth degree and um i remember a night just before lockdown i've got my daughter and son working at the seahorse and uh, my daughter's boyfriend was working at the time as well and i worked that particular evening i left the restaurant at 11 o'clock it was a magical evening the bar was full the restaurant was full and i came home my daughter got back home at half past two uh and then my son called me at three and said daddy you still awake i went yeah he said can i come around so he came around and i'm sat there with my kids at half past three in the morning thinking the human cost of running a restaurant is just not worth it we're all just sat here you know wired after this service and i don't think customers really appreciate that 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 goes into it and uh, and so we decided to change the restaurant model at the seahorse too by opening all day shortening the hours shortening the menu and again the result is a much happier bunch of people you know it's um and i think that's 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 what's been great to come out of this pandemic for us how have you felt personally during this time do you see the industry differently and and your own life i don't see the industry differently i mean i i i'm a i think cut me in half and i've got restaurants written in the middle of me i i just adore being in my own restaurants everybody else's restaurants and i you know i walk into a you know that fish market you know most days and it's incredibly exciting for me so i i still feel as passionate and loving about the industry as i ever have done but in my own personal life um i had the joy of you know spending it mostly with all my children who are now grown up and we walked a lot we were in the summer when we were allowed to we sailed um, my daughter taught me to do yoga and i built some structure to my life which i never used to have it used to be up in the morning have a brandy and you know then you go to the fish market and go to see everybody and, uh, and now what I've done is built a structure of my life where I get up and I work because I'm best in the mornings. I take a run or exercise at four, maybe a, a light lunch in the middle. And I try and finish my day at around five or six in the evening, unless I'm going into one of the restaurants. And I, I've never done that before. I used to just be, my wife would say, you're never home. And I would say, no, I am. And the truth was, I wasn't. I was, I was always in the restaurants, you know, and, um, which is no, you know, I think you've got to do that to build them. But, um, I'm perhaps a little more balanced. That's what's come out of lockdown for me. The uh, chance to travel abroad again has really been stifled this year and many borders are shut and the airline industry is in turmoil. Um, and yet people in food or people who love food travel for food. They go to all different countries for different experiences. How are you feeling about the future of that and the experiences that you've had in the past and potentially what that may mean in the next couple of years? Well, I think in some ways we're, you know, we're forced to examine our own on what's on our own doorsteps, which is no bad thing. I mean, there are, you know, I said, I talked about London earlier and the, and the restaurant scene there. There's a lot of chefs that are quitting cities and already have done that are opening up on the coast in the UK. And there's any number of really fabulous places that I would normally just jump on a plane to Mallorca or Menorca or somewhere and go away for a, a week and enjoy the sun and food there. I'm going to spend some time, you know, getting around, some of the places in the northeast that I haven't been and Manchester and places and just enjoy um, some great British restaurants I would normally um, shy away from. And uh, and also, you know, uh, the interest in our coastline over here now is, is is become really brilliant. You know, before I, I think the British coastline was, you know, it's been it's been going through change for the last 10 or 15 years. And, and now people have realised actually it's very, very beautiful and brilliant. So they'll stay here. For me, going away, I mean, I used to travel probably once or twice a month to 
somewhere in Europe to eat and uh, and meet people. I shall miss it. But if it didn't happen for a couple of years, um, then it would it would be fine. And I think in some ways, you know, one lesson that we we have to take out of this is is that a twenty quid flight to Europe doesn't do the planet any good. Um, we need to kind of do less of that stuff. And, you know, we plan our big holiday a year where we, you know, if I'm going to Australia, I'm going for six weeks and, you know, that's my holiday. And uh, I'm not going to go to Australia and this and that and this and that and this and that. I mean, that's, we just have to do less of it, I think. Uh, which will be great for our local economies, right? I mean, you know, if everyone doesn't go away, uh, our seaside towns and our, our local economy will be great. And, and, you know, the other thing I really worry about is I go to Madrid and any of those sort of in Galicia and all those places because I love the small little bars in Venice where I love to be crammed in. And God, what I wouldn't give to be in Venice now, just eating some seafood and drinking in a bar. But to get to a bar where, I, where there's screens and I can't be crammed in and people are wearing masks, I, I kind of wonder whether it'll all come back to how it really was because that's what I went for. And and I won't go unless I can do that. I, I want the, I want that culture. That's that's why I go to those places. You know, what's it looking like at the moment? Is are you starting to get on top of the virus? There is there hope that everything will open up again soon. How are you feeling about that? I'm feeling pretty negative. I think about the next three months. Uh, I think you know we're in lockdown here until the second of December, and the government is saying that you know on the second we are definitely coming out of it. But what they're going to do is to reintroduce different tiers depending on the R rate uh, in um, in different areas. And some of those rules have been very hard to interpret and understand, especially how they've been applied to hospitality. So I'm expecting that what they'll do is there'll be harsher rules around things. And I think hospitality will be the industry that, that suffers. And, and the sadness is, like in every sector, there is good hospitality and there is less good hospitality. But I would say that of all the restaurants I know, they are probably the safest places to go and eat. I mean, what we go through at work is just utterly phenomenal uh, in keeping our restaurants uh, COVID secure. And, uh, you know, extra people on cleaning, you know, we have hosts on the doors. I mean, you know, phenomenal levels of stuff. So restaurants are safe and that's the, that's the frustration about it. Well, there's some nervous times ahead because you do have a lot of cases and you're heading into winter, but is there some, is there some positives to come out of this experience for you and the industry? Definitely. I mean, you know, like like anything, there'll be a culling of businesses that, you know, we're, we're never, you know, really doing that well anyway. And there'll be I think there's a strengthening in the industry of, you know, that, that sort of people are starting to have to think again, that raw thought and kind of adapt and, uh, and make things happen. Uh, like like my own personal journey through lockdown has been, as I said earlier, one one of only positivity. And I mean, you know, we're in second lockdown here and I'm looking out the window and it's it's just not sunny, but I'm enjoying the time. I'm taking the time to to write the Rockfish Cookbook and uh, and do some other stuff. And I'm and I am hugely uh, positive about the future. I, I'm probably feeling a little bit more frustrated that I, I just want to get my restaurants open again because I love them. And uh, and you know when you're in your house, you you know I'm enjoying cooking with Pen, my wife, and and my my son coming around in the evening is also a chef, and we drink a bottle of wine and you know cook together, which is wonderful. Um, but I also I think all of us just can't wait to get back. Uh, back together and get in the restaurants. There'll come a time when we're beyond the pandemic and beyond COVID and society opens up again. What, what's your hope for 
uh, for the industry at that time? Well, I hope I hope we stayed intact, and I hope that we're not all so debt ridden that you know we're we're going to be working for the next ten years just to sort of get back to where we were before the pandemic. But my hope is that everybody will uh, will get back on their feet, and also that people will really appreciate the hospitality industry even more because, as I said earlier, we're a social nation, and uh, pubs and restaurants form uh, a huge part of who we are and what we do. That's how our communities get together. And um, as you say, we're a small island and, and we like to be out um, socialising together, you know. So uh, I hope it'll just it'll just really bounce back and people will value them all. Well, from a selfish point of view, I'm glad to hear that you're having the time to, um, to write the Rockfish book. I'm very much looking forward to seeing that. Um, Mitch, we've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds. Um, incredible stuff over there and uh, you're a bloody inspiration, mate. Um, please keep in touch and uh, we'll talk again soon. Okay, that's great. It's been really, really nice to chat to you and uh, yeah, stay in touch and uh, yeah, good luck to everyone uh, who's uh, deep in the weeds at this particular moment trying to work it all out. But uh, stay positive because we'll all be out of it at some point. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospo community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well. <laughs>